Hello, I'm Thomas Dixon. Welcome to this, the final episode of Living with Feeling, a podcast series about emotions in the 21st century, brought to you by the Queen Mary Centre for the History of the Emotions. Way back in episode one, we set the agenda for the series in a conversation with a psychotherapist, Philippa Perry, and a priest, the Reverend Giles Fraser. Since then, we've heard from a fascinating cast of experts on emotional life. Psychologists, psychiatrists, art therapists and well-being practitioners, primary school teachers and their pupils, technologists, ethicists, and even some robots. And to round things off, and to figure out what it all means, I'm joined today by two of my fellow historians of emotions and presenters on this series. Sarah Cheney is a historian of nursing and emotions. Her most recent book is called Am I Normal? The 200-Year Search for Normal People and Why They Don't Exist. And her episode in this series was all about robot nurses. Richard Firth Godby here is a historian of disgust, among many other emotions, and the author of a sweeping and scintillating book entitled A Human History of Emotion, How the Way We Feel Built the World We Know. His episode of Living with Feeling took us into the world of emotional artificial intelligence. Welcome, both of you. Thank you for being here. It's great to see you both in person. And for this final Living with Feeling episode, I feel I should ask, how are you feeling today? Yeah, I'm feeling surprisingly relaxed. Um, I think it's probably the relief at getting out of the sunshine outside and into a cool studio. We are recording on a boiling hot day. We've already done a high profile interview on BBC Radio. So Sarah looking cool despite all of that. How are you, Rich? Um, I am cooling down also, having been baked on the train. Um, It's amazing how how the temperature can affect your emotions. (laughs) It is indeed. So we're going to try and be cool while also a bit emotional today. Now, we're all versed here in history and the feelings of the past. But in this episode, I want us to see if we can use that historical knowledge to produce some cool and detached perspectives on the present and even some predictions about the feelings of the future. And I think a good way into that is to start with Sarah's robot nurses. They produced a lot of animation in the first episode we did with Giles and Philippa. And as I recall, Giles Fraser got so annoyed by the idea, he said that he was grateful that he'd be dead before robot nurses became a very widespread thing in society. While I was much more uh, relaxed and quite keen on the idea of not having to interact with humans uh, when I was needing a lot of care. So, Sarah... Uh, I don't think you were as won over as I was by the idea of actually having a robot nurse look after you. Is that right? Um, Yeah, that's right. Um, Perhaps that's partly because I met some of the robots um, and and I did actually find them somewhat unsettling. Although, um, as uh, Amelia DeFalco was telling me at the time, that's probably in large part because of the cultural associations that we have with robots, this fear that they're going to suddenly take over the world and that they are there is this kind of uncanny uncanny valley thing with them that that you expect them to behave in a certain way and then they don't quite do or look or um, react in the way that you expect as as something that's living would yeah Richard if you look ahead to the future and maybe one day hopefully a long time in the distant future you might be frail and in need of a lot of care would you be happy if it was a robot coming in day to day, giving you your cup of tea and your medicine? If it's the technology around in 30 years time, then yeah, maybe. If it's the technology around now, not so sure. 
what I've seen of it is there's a lot of um, very good ideas, not so well executed, mm. it, you know. Do neither of you have the feeling I do that it might be quite a relief not to have to have the sort of social interaction with someone you don't know uh, and instead just have a robot come in and, I mean... In Sarah's episode, you hear they make this kind of conversation like, so, you know, in the Second World War, I hear a lot of people were evacuated. Did that happen to you? Or <laughs> I know that British people talk about the weather a lot. Would you like to chat about the weather? Does that not appeal at all to either of you? Not at all to me. I mean, if I, I, can, I can appreciate the idea of having a robot that you don't have to interact with. Mm. Um, so for me, it's a bit like... You know, when you go to the hairdresser and you have to make small talk and I'd just rather sit there in silence and have my hair cut. Yeah. Um, yeah. But if the robot's asking you all these pointless small talky questions, then why, why would you want that? Surely the point of the robot is you don't have to interact with them. Or, well, the other example that came up was a robot, you know, wiping your bum for you or something or doing washing you or something. Might that be more comfortable experience than a human being doing those intimate and personal things? As long as they're not asking me personal questions while they're wiping my bum, that might be <laughs> uncomfortable. Um, yeah, that's where you want the silence, really. Yeah. You want to, I mean, I really like with Alexa that you can say, Alexa, stop, and she'll stop. Maybe that needs to happen with these robots as well, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Well, I, I think I can see a bit more potential for it than you guys can. But, yeah, so we're saying not too much small talk, but maybe doing some practical physical mm. things where you don't really want any small talk and you don't really want a human presence. So I wanted to get a bit more at them. What is it that, you know, that we want human beings for and what is it that in the future we'll be happy if it's an app? So, Richard, in your episode, you looked at well-being apps mm. and there's also the potential to do psychotherapy through an app yep. on, on your smartphone that may not have a human being behind it, but maybe it's just a CBT kind of program yeah um so both with that and with robot companions and robot carers can you imagine a future in which people are quite happy to outsource at least some of their emotional life to these non-human technologies well as far as the apps go um you use them so what did you think well i liked some of them <laughs> I, there's one called the mood meter, which which we talked about, yeah. and um, it asks you what emotion you're having, and it gives you a very nice range. It's got a very rich emotional vocabulary, and you can choose if you're despairing or energized or I don't know. It has a good good range of, of options, uh, and then you can look back over time and see how your mood has changed. I did quite like that yeah. actually, um, but it wasn't trying to do anything very sophisticated. Yeah. It wasn't offering me therapy or anything. Do you have an emotional relationship with any of your apps, Sarah, or can you envisage? Um, no, not that I can think of. And I, I, again, we're back to the maybe I've just spent my entire life watching too much dystopian science fiction that all, all I can think of when you're talking about us kind of using these to regulate our emotions or to, to manage things in the future, all I think of is the machine stopped. Like, if everything breaks down, what then? And again, the robots in my episode were constantly breaking down. And yeah. then perhaps we run out of the vocabulary and the ability to do these things without the apps if we use them too much. I actually think um, as the technology gets better, which hopefully it will, as a first defence, if you like, as a first port of call, these apps might be helpful because we have a strain on how many people can access mental health care, for example. And if they can just have something, something that can reassure them and help them and guide them, that's better than nothing. I'm not sure about them taking over from the professionals. That's where I have the sort of 
line is crossed at that point. Yeah, that's how I feel about schools, having spent a lot of time making this series and uh, going into primary schools and so on. There's not much option. There are are, are children in schools who are distressed. They can't get access to mental health services because there's waiting lists of years. Mm. So they have to have something. It's better they have something, which might be um, a PSHE lesson or a wellbeing program in their school than nothing. I think you're saying the same thing about apps. It may be better to have a basic CBT app or a mood tracker than than nothing. nothing. Yeah. Okay, so we've been talking about smartphones and things in the real world right now. Richard, you've thought a lot about machines and science fiction and whether it might come true, and Sarah's already alluded to this. Do you think there will be really, truly emotional machines at any point in the future, sentient, feeling robots? Well, there's at least one worker at Google who thinks it's already happened. Can you enlighten us? There was a worker at Google. I don't know the details, but basically they were sacked because they went online to claim that Google's AI program had become sentient because they asked it a question about what frightens it. And it said, I'm frightened of being switched off because I think I'll die. And that was enough for them to think it's sentient. Um, Do you think that that is enough to think it's sentient? I think that that will lead to uh, a lot of philosophers of mind earning a lot of money for a long time trying to work out whether that's they're really feeling or they're pretending to feel, and what's the difference between synthetic feelings and real feelings? Um, I, I'd love to get on that gravy show, and I don't know how, but uh, it's great. I mean, that conversation has been going on for a lot longer yes. than, than than Google or, or right. Alexa or anything else has existed. I mean, I wouldn't fund anyone to study that, because I think obviously it hasn't. Obviously, it's just learned how to put words together in a way that makes some kind yeah. of sense. But, well, good luck to the people who want to to, to, to get grants studying yeah. that. But do you think in the future, let's say we assume that Google, uh, you know, help robot is not currently sentient. Do you think at some point there will be? Do you think there could be? Is there any basis on which we can answer that question? It's not just pure speculation. Um, I, th- I think it is hard to answer uh, without simply speculating. And I, I suppose part of that is because we don't really know what, makes us sentient like what yeah. what is our con- where does our consciousness come from what do what do we mean by being human in that yeah. way so therefore how can we explain if a robot is or isn't yeah. well one one answer to that might be we have a human brain and a human body you know and roughly speaking we're all hooked up the same way with the same basic vital organs brain heart liver and so forth and one might and some people do argue that's what you need to be sentient and therefore anything else isn't going to have it would you sign up to that I think I agree that things like interoception and the idea of feedback to the brain, without it, a brain isn't, it's a computer and it's not processing anything. It needs stimulus. Whether the stimulus has to be what we have, it has to be touch and seeing and smelling and tasting, I don't know. But there has to be some kind of stimulus, otherwise, what is it? It's What kind of consciousness would it have? It'd be, it'd be nightmarish if it was conscious, surely. Ooh, there's a scary thought. <laughs> Sarah, do you think, yeah, for, for human emotions, you have to basically have a human body? And that's the William James view of emotion, that mm. our organs and our bodies respond, and then we experience that as an emotion. Um, but I guess that still doesn't, it doesn't really yeah. explain anything, um, ultimately, when you come down to it. Um, so you still, you still don't know what this thing is that, um, that creates this emotion. You know, our bodies, our bodies are supposedly creating this emotion, but how? What is it? Well, it's 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 still leaving so many answer, more un- unanswered questions. Okay, 
I think one of the in- instincts that people have about why they don't want a robot nurse, to come back to that before we move on, is that um, that robot will lack real feeling. Right? And that was kind of one of the big questions you were addressing in your episode, Sarah. Because they don't have a human body and they're not human and you can switch them off at the power, we don't believe they have emotions. And that's why they're an unsatisfactory nurse. I mean, do you, either of you have some sympathy with that point of view? It's the lack of human emotion that makes them a bad carer. Um, I, I, I don't think necessarily um, that that's that's the concern that I that I would have with it because I actually think that historically speaking, as well, there's been too much emphasis placed on the need for a carer to feel a particular set of genuine emotions, and in fact, when you look into ideas like. Emotional labour, which was a term proposed in the 1980s to explain uh, the emotional work, types of work that were carried out, there was not a necessity for that to incorporate genuine emotion or not, uh, or that people, there was a kind of deep acting that people might do, um, flight attendants being the example that um, that's often used, in order to create the desired feelings uh, in the customer. So actually the flight attendant themselves doesn't necessarily have to be feeling a particular set of emotions. And that could equally hold true within um, within healthcare and nursing. And yet throughout much of history, we've had this assumption that, that nurses do require to actually actively feel this particular set of emotions. So Sarah, would you like to see us go beyond that to say to nurses... Feeling emotions, feeling compassion and empathy, it's not particularly a big part of the role. That's not really what you're here for. <laughs> oh, you've really Is that too much? Spot now. <laughs> yeah. I can say that, but you, you're not sure if you want to sign up for that. No, I don't think so. I think we're all going to experience certain emotions through any role. And when we do uh, look into the history of nursing and nursing today, you know, people will talk about the experiences they have and the death of their first patient say and that that is a very emotional experience it's not necessarily a particular set of emotions that are expected and I think that's the difference that I would make that there are certain sets of emotions that have been expected or required of nurses at particular times and those have changed a little throughout history but actually they may not be quite the same as the actual emotional experience of nursing and that what perhaps we should be doing is looking at the disconnect there and looking at the actual experiences that nurses may have and and how they can then manage those rather than saying they don't need to have emotions at all and ignoring the very existence of them. Rich, if you go to the dentist or the doctor or into a healthcare setting, do you care about what they're feeling, the people you interact with? Uh, no. In the recent history of Disgust, my favourite thing, there is there was a bit of a moral panic over the idea of being desensitised to things in computer games and all sorts of things. But I would make the argument that if I was to have surgery on my abdomen... I would rather the surgeon be desensitised to the gore of my gut than open me up and go, oh, what's that? You know, it's kind of, it's not always a bad thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And in, in, in teaching, one comes across that as well. That it, It's quite valuable to be able to detach from your emotions. It's, it's, it's helpful for primary school children to be able to detach from their emotions. And it's helpful for nurses and for surgeons yeah, to be able to detach absolutely. from their emotions. I think that's an important part of a tradition that's perhaps been a bit lost in our culture, the idea that emotions are important, but also it's really great if you can mm. turn them off a bit in, in certain yeah. professional contexts. Now, as well as thinking about how technology and artificial intelligence and robots are changing our emotional lives in the 21st century, in this series we've also been thinking about categories from medicine and psychiatry, including trauma, 
well-being um, and the increasing way that they shape the way we think about our feelings. Now, in some ways, I suspect that all of us, and I've had conversations with you both before about this, would quite like to make some changes to the way the mental health conversation goes on um, at the moment. Uh, perhaps giving it a nudge in a certain direction, perhaps changing some of the language or categories that are used, or perhaps, as I feel quite often, blowing the whole thing up and starting again. Um, so perhaps I could ask you if there was one thing you could do to change the content or language of the mental health conversation and the public messaging about emotions and mental health. Does anything spring to mind you'd really like to change? I think for me, it's that we not obsess about diagnosis uh, quite so much, that we don't assume that there are these very discrete and unchanging things that we call specific diagnoses um, that as we've seen through the history of psychiatry, uh, things like depression, like um, autism, like uh, ADHD, these change over time and they are reliant to a certain extent on, on the cultural landscape around them. And actually we need to understand that in order to be able to understand the experiences people are having of these things. But I think today we've become very We've often become quite wedded to these diagnoses and find it hard to see outside of them. So I, I really like the way that David Rosenhan put it in the 1970s um, as part of his work in the uh, so-called anti-psychiatry movement. Uh, he, he said anxiety and depression exist, uh, psychological suffering exists, but normality and abnormality, sanity and insanity and the diagnoses that flow from them are rather uh, less exact and specific than we imagine them to be. Yeah, I'd go along with that. I think this whole idea of everything being... I'm always suspicious of boxes. Um, whenever you wrap something in a nice little box, there's always a crack somewhere and the box doesn't work. And I think there needs to be more general conversation about how fluid these things are, how fluid these feelings are. In some areas, it's sort of happening. People are on now what is known as the spectrum now, people are autistic. That's kind of slowly being demedicalized. It's just another way of thinking rather mm. than some horrible thing that an a right. vaccine gives you doesn't give you. I think the autism spectrum is a very interesting example mm. um, because ASD, autistic spectrum disorder. So mm. then we're back into that thing of what's normal and what's abnormal. I mean, disorder is a very loaded term, isn't it? You know, if you want to yes. talk to your child about this and you have to say it's a disorder, that doesn't sound like a very positive. Mm. And that's maybe a good example of these yeah. kind of categories. Whereas neurodiversity yeah. is, a, is a much more positive term. And in fact, like when we look through the history of of what's normal, many of the people in the mid-20th century researching it found that actually variation was kind of the dominant factor in, in the human species mm. yeah. rather than a particular defining uh, type of normality. So looking back 100 or 200 years, I mean, we've already talked about a couple of examples. Can we see categories from the 19th or 20th century which are kind of obviously problematic for us now and then think about you know, which of our categories we have today are going to suffer the same fate. I mean, look, very obvious and sort of crass example is that homosexuality was treated as a disorder for a long time by, by psychiatry. Um, and we were just saying now perhaps autism will be in that category that was for mm. many decades mm. called a disorder. I mean, maybe are all our categories in that. In that uh, Possibly. Yeah. I mean, I think back to hysteria. That is a very female thing which was hysteria and then when men started getting hysteria men couldn't get hysteria so let's rebrand it as a men's version that's shell shock and it's sort of you know no 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 it's it's versions of the similar thing um and they're different but the same and they change and yeah it changes all the time because nobody would come back from the war now claiming they had shell shock i don't think um 
and it's no, yeah. it'll be post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah, post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah. So, I mean, I think what we're all saying, we're all sort of nodding at each other around the table, is that basically all our psychological and psychiatric categories are in this position, that they're yeah. temporary yeah. and they're going to change again and we should be sort of vigilant about yeah, them. Yeah, and you get some periods in history where people recognise that fact more than they perhaps mm. do at other times. Like at the very end of the 19th century and turn of the 20th century, you get some, some psychiatrists saying, actually, it's more useful to look at clusters of symptoms and, and emotions and experiences rather than using a diagnosis at all. And then that just dies away again and then it comes back and then it yeah. dies away. <laughs> so you'd be wanting to nudge us towards a sort of more critical approach to these categories. But you can understand the you can understand the motivation, can't you? I mean the people who's devoting their lives to help uh, children, young people or adults with mental suffering, you know, they're, they're reaching for depression or anxiety or autism to try and explain. You know, so it can be liberating, can't it, to have that language. To yeah. say, you know, you're not I mean Sarah, you've just written a book, well am I normal? I mean to be able to say to a child, you're not abnormal, you are this, whatever it might be can be liberating rather than, I mean, I think you're talking about putting people in boxes and so on. Yeah. We can be afraid that pathologizing is is taking away people's liberty and people's agency, but it maybe can also be liberating. Yeah, I think, and I think sometimes it can be useful for people to have uh, an explanation um, mm. for, I mean, take ADHD, for example, um, that for both parents and children, that can often be really powerful for when other people around you are saying your child's just badly behaved and then the diagnosis gives you something to reassure you and say because you know your child is not just badly behaved they are having difficulties but looking at in the wider context we need to be thinking about you know how could we change educational settings for example to actually make it easier for these children who are struggling in this environment rather than just labelling them with, with a particular diagnosis. Yeah. This has brought me on to something I wanted to ask you about, actually, which is the question of, I mean, in the past, if I think about what would have been different 100 years ago or more, there would have been much less understanding, much less sympathy, and much less um, sort of ex- explanation available for the child with what we might now call ADHD or with someone who's very distressed and very disruptive in in a school or other social setting. Whereas now there's a lot of ways in which we say it is not that individual's fault. And there's a lot of versions of this. It's not their fault because it's about their traumatic upbringing or it's not them, it's their mental disorder that they've got. It's not them, it's their neurological pathways or their brain chemistry. Is there any worry that we're going to get to the stage where no one's responsible for their feelings at all and that might not be very empowering for people. Well, and I kind of agree with Philippa Perry from the first episode that um, we can't really be held responsible for our feelings if mm. um, because they may happen automatically and immediately. They may happen before we've really thought about something. We could be held responsible for the actions that follow those feelings, but I'm not sure how we can judge somebody based on the way they feel about a particular situation. Yeah, feelings are the hard to police we're getting into thought policing when we start emotion policing as well and it's about the actions but i suppose if there is something that means the actions are difficult to control as well that's where you you get to a grayer area as to whether we're just saying well they're such and such therefore they can behave like this they're allowed to behave like this or whether we should actually say if you have this then we need to step in work with you to work how our society, and this of course will also change over time, thinks you ought to behave when you feel those feelings. You know, teach people the correct way to be. So there's nothing wrong with feeling hatred, let's say, towards a particular group in society. But there is, if you act on it, are you both saying that? 
Um, I mean, yeah, yeah. That, of course, there's a lot of examples of history where people have behaved in terrible ways. And I think you should feel anger and perhaps even hatred towards towards that. Yeah. Um, and think, yeah, it depends what the actions are, of course, because if your hatred is to vote them out, that's fine. If your hatred is to do something violent, then maybe not. And again, it's learning what this behaviour is ought to be. So I think this conversation is bringing to focus for me a sort of, yeah, feeling that I have all the time with the, the, we sort of lost any kind of moral framework. Um, it's making me sound very reactionary. Uh, Giles Fraser in the first episode was worrying about sounding reactionary and now I'm, I'm taking that role. But, you know, I, I really, as you know, I, I really struggle with your emotions are valid, you know, which is a message which goes out to yeah. everybody all the time. That seems to me so lame. <laughs> Uh, and I want to. I want to slightly, slightly more sort of critical approach. You know, your emotions might be rubbish. You know, they might be based on a completely distorted and deluded view of the world, which is really dangerous. Mm. Your emotions might be based on hatred and ignorance, and so they're not valid. But even if this is a distorted view of the world that you have, it's still very real to you. So, like one of the one of the examples I, I looked at in in my book was a young man in nineteenth century Bethlehem Hospital, um, and the experiences that he'd had that, that had led him into a psychiatric hospital. Um, that he thought he was being experimented on in his boarding house. He thought he was being followed in the street by people. They were calling him names. Uh, he thought he was being experimented on by the neurologist Jonathan Sharko. And if you thought all of those things were real, then you would be very scared and very anxious. And without understanding that somebody is having all all those experiences, how can you deal with the anxiety and fear that they're feeling? But you wouldn't want to say to that person that your emotions are valid. Because you've just said they're based on these delusions. But but they are valid if they think think this thing is real. No, they're not valid. They, they, They exist. They're feeling them. I mean, that's not what I mean by valid. I suppose to me what I'm saying is it's a legitimate response to thinking those things are real and without treating it as uh, understanding that for that person this is they okay. think this thing so is real. Your and emotions are understandable. Yeah, maybe that's a better way of putting <laughs> <Yeah>. it. <laughs> but what about the, when we're talking about someone who's not got a mental illness and is not suffering from delusions but hates people of a particular minority group because of the colour of their skin or because of their sexual orientation, do we say to them, your emotions are valid? Or understandable. No, I guess not. Um, but then again, yeah, well, it's a, diff- it's a dangerous dangerous tightrope to tread this. But yes, uh, not going into that, but there are certain points of view, you know, so... Yasantoe, the great African queen, she was furious, so she attacked the British and killed 20,000 of them or so because they were trying to take over her her land and take her golden throne away. Now, from the British point of view, those emotions were not valid and they were dangerous and she shouldn't have them. But from her her countrymen's point of view, they absolutely were and she did absolutely the right thing. So, to sound a little bit like Obi-Wan Kenobi, sometimes these depends on your point of view. But then again, yes, maybe there are moral absolutes, well-being absolutes like racism, where you got to say, no, your emotions aren't valid. You're just racist. You know? I think, yeah, I think if I were going to yeah, make one change to the mental health conversation, it would be to stop telling people their emotions are valid, just as a simple statement. Yeah. I, I just don't think that's, that's helpful. 
your emotions are real. Your emotions are understandable. Your emotions are important to you and seem very powerful. But I, I would, I would not, I would not tell people their emotions are valid just as a straightforward, uh, mm. yeah, sort of yeah. S- simple statement mm. about them. That that distinction makes sense to me. Yeah. Oh, good. <laughs> I've won you round. That's excellent. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't expecting that. I was expecting just to sit here and rant about it for a bit. Um, but that's good. That's very good. Um, while we're yeah, sort of getting on our soapboxes, I'm changing the subject a little bit now because I want to get into sort of the science of emotions. So we, we, we've we've talked there about the value judgments around them, and we've talked about mental health and sort of normal versus abnormal, and what messages are we giving people. But I'm interested, uh, especially through your episode, Rich, in thinking about the sort of new science of emotion. And yeah. I know that one of the limitations of well-being apps and emotion apps that we might have on our phones, and also when I go into schools and see the way they teach teach young children about feelings. One of the limitations is when that's all structured around the basic emotions theory. The Paul Ackman, inside out, there are a small number of basic emotions. They look like this and they're the same for everyone. Um, Now, I know you've talked in your episode and talked a lot in other contexts about what's wrong with that. And people listening to this episode will probably have some familiarity with that. But if you want to recap maybe the limitations briefly of basic emotions... But what I'm more interested in is what is a better theory? For example, is the core affect or circumplex theory of emotion better? So if you give us a little really short and incredibly clear lecture on that for the next minute or two, that would be great. A short lecture. Okay. Um, The idea is basically that if you go anywhere in the world and present people with scenarios, they will pull one of six faces depending on the scenario given to them. It doesn't matter whether they're in Papua New Guinea, Japan, America, wherever, there are these six faces. So that's the basic emotion. That's the basic emotion idea. Um, The the issue with it is, well, there are many, many issues with it, but the issue with it is, is the argument, the way the science has been done is to kind of push people towards those faces by the very questions they're being asked. So it's a bit like saying, here's a leaf, go and pile a load of colours that are the same colour as that leaf together out of all these hues. Well, they're going to put greens together. That's what's going to happen. Whereas what you, when they do it differently and just say, here's a big pile of faces, group them as your culture groups them, they're a completely different set to the basic emotions. It's completely different. It's not the same. So it's like in Russia where they have a light blue and dark blue and they're two distinct colours to them. It's a totally different thing. You know? So if you force the kind of basic yeah. emotions template onto people, you can make them yes. sort of give responses that seem to, to confirm it. Yeah. Okay. But we're a bit sceptical about that. And we yeah. historians, we tend to be a bit more relativist and we, we prefer theories which allow for cultures to have their own way of categorizing things. Yes. So can you give us a, a quick uh, intro to what is core affect or the circumplex theory? The, the circumplex theory, the core affect uh, of James Russell originally, um, is the idea that instead of having, we do have evolved feelings, but they are basically feelings, responses that you put on a graph, if you like, with two, two areas, valence and... So valence means? Valence is basically how... It's how good or bad it is. Isn't it? Valence is, yeah. is how is it nice or nasty. Yes, I have to get these back to front. And then the other one is sort of energy level. Is yeah. it? So is, is it, it weak or strong? Or? Is it? Is it? Is it? Is it? Yeah. Is it weak or strong? Is it good or bad? So the good or bad thing. Um, and so the strong and is, positive would be like ecstatic. Yeah. Weak and positive, unenergized and positive would be like calm. Yeah. Yeah. And so on. Uh, and then different cultures, calm would be a. English culture response to what that where that dot is on that graph, but other cultures put dots in other places and have other words for these things, um, and that's the idea. And where what these words are, it's not just a dot on a graph. There's 
all sorts involved, which is where it gets more complicated and you get into the idea of psychological construction because it's about context, it's about memory, it's about uh, how you were brought up, where you were brought up, what you know, the heuristics in your brain that make you process these things, all sorts of things all pile on. And then there's a word, we give that pile on, we say we are that because we are this on this graph. And historians tend to prefer this theory as well because it's consistent with our approach to try to understand emotions through a particular culture and particular time and place. And when we're writing and teaching about the history of emotions, we often talk about lost emotions or emotions that have been forgotten from the past. And that leads me to wonder, both of you, whether there are any kind of emotions that you've come across in your own research in the past that you feel are kind of unfamiliar to us now or have been lost or you would like to revive or you would, yeah... (laughs) people wouldn't understand now. I mean, there are very famous examples. Acedia is the one that's most often yeah. used, this sort of medieval spiritual malaise. Are there, Sarah, I wonder in your work, sort of uh, moral and emotional qualities ascribed to nurses in the early 20th century? Well, we might recognise the word, but they're not really ones that we that we value or talk about now. Um, yeah, I guess the one that's, that's used most often in the early 20th century is sympathy. And that's quite widespread in discussion of nursing. But it's a very, when they explain what they mean by this sympathy, it's a very practical kind of emotion and then begins to be described as the psychological work of a nurse, that the nurse is kind of understanding the patient's feelings and then the sympathy is using them to get the desired results. So uh, so then perhaps perhaps that's persuading the patient to take a particular medication because they've understood the reasons why the patient's feeling So the sympathy uncertain. is sort of two-way and it's kind of some, a resonance yeah. between the patient and the nurse and the nurse can use it, isn't it? you're saying, in quite a pragmatic kind of way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And they're very concerned about um, that one end of sympathy is a kind of sentimental sympathy um, but they feel, they feel that it should never become that right. no, I, mean, I can imagine a, a Victorian Red Wardian nurse should not be showing sentimental sympathy yeah. I mean I, I, a word I was thinking of when you were talking there also would be like fortitude maybe I think is a word that was ascribed to nurses which you don't hear that much about today mm-hmm. but again I think in episode one Giles Fraser was was advocating for fortitude as a sort of emotional virtue that, that has been lost yeah you get that in the First World War especially and um, in the uh, Royal College of Nursing which was founded out of the First World War there's stained glass windows of the three chief virtues of nursing shortly after the war are faith, fortitude and love, which apart from perhaps love in some to some degree, we're unlikely to use the very to describe nursing today. It's very interesting, yeah, because we think yeah. of ourselves as living in a culture which is very emotionally literate and quite sort of emotionally over the top from some people's point of view. And there's a lot of feeling in a lot of context and it's highly valued. But yet, yeah, if you go back to the 20th, 19th, 18th century, there's a lot of emotion and there's a lot of love because you mentioned that word love. You know, I, I, I've looked at 19th century educationalists who, who write very, in a very sort of matter of fact way about love being the foundation of education, which is a view that Catherine Burble Singh put to me in the episode about schools for, for, for this, mm-hmm. which for this series, which took me aback somewhat. So love, I think, has a separate history um, yeah. as a really important principle for people that we don't maybe hear quite so much about today. Mm. I remember Rory Stewart mentioning love when he was standing for the Conservative leadership a few years ago, and that that prompted a lot of comment from people. Yeah, it's <laughs> not it's, all of it positive. It's an interesting one, love, because uh, yeah, there's, there's a famous um, writing about the Crusades being an act of love of um, Curitas. It was an act of love and charity because they were getting the Holy Land back for for God from the Saracens, um, and yet. I have to say, don't, sorry to interrupt you, that's one of my favourite titles ever for a history article was yes. Crusading as an Act, act of, of Love, love. because it, it completely 
sort of scrambles your brain. I mean, think, yeah. It's just not what you're expecting at all. Uh, and you really want to read the article to find out yeah. what, what he's saying. And, and you've started explaining it there. It's about Christian charity yeah. and, and, and saving the Holy Land from... Yes, it's an excellent article, actually. And it's it's very, very interesting. And um, and and the other end, when I'm looking at these people talking about artificial emotions and science emotions, I don't see love come up very often. And so It's one of the really curious yeah. things about the theory of basic emotions, that love is not one yeah. of them. No love and I no think hate. would raise, uh, yeah, no love and no hate. Very odd. And it yeah. would raise a lot of eyebrows. Why, why do you think that is, that there's no love yeah. and hate? Because uh, in basic emotions theory, mm. I think the reason that there's no love and hate, but there is fear, disgust, happiness, sadness and anger. anger is because love and hate are too complicated and they're too cultural and they don't have a nice, easily measurable physical expression that you can get people in a laboratory to produce in a period of about 30 seconds while you attach your uh, devices to them. And I think that's literally what, what it is. You know, the basic emotions and a lot of scientific accounts of emotion necessarily have to be about things that you can measure. And so I think, yeah. I, I assume you'd agree, Rich, you know, yes. you thought a lot about these things. You know, the scientific method shapes the theory. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I think that's why the people doing artificial emotions like the basic emotions, because they can code them. They're a thing they can code, whereas all this sort of cultural art, weird stuff, no, they can't, there's no line of code that's easily write, writable. Is that the right word? Writable about that. Um, so they go for the boxes yeah. again. Yeah. Now, before we come to the end, and I, I want to ask you a couple of final questions um, about how you think about these things as historians and, and ask you to imagine the future again one more time. But before I do that, I wanted to ask you both, um, if there's anything in the process of making your episode for this series or in thinking about the topic you were you were um, looking at that you've changed your mind about or that you found particularly surprising? Uh, hopefully, we've all learned through this series, but yeah, what, what did you learn or find surprising, Sarah? Um, well, I guess as we've already established, I've um, been brought up with the fear that robots are going to take over the world. So I think one of, perhaps one of the most surprising things for me was how basic many of these care robots really are. Like having met some of the robots that just kind of, you know, move around in circles, run into the wall. They, there's very, it's very limited uh, what, what they can actually do. So you've been cured somewhat of your fear that robots are going to take over the world because they're so hopeless. Yes, I hope so. <laughs> Rich, have you changed your mind about anything? Have you got a more optimistic view at all of, of, of what apps might do for us or artificial intelligence might offer us in an emotional way? Perhaps in that first line of defence way. I always thought they were bad because they were bad because, you know, we can't have them. We miss, They must be a human involved. But the more I think about it, the more I think how difficult it is to access um, mental health care and so on, I think... Having something, like I said earlier, rather than nothing, is a great thing. Um, so I've changed there. I'm also curious about the Uncanny Valley, but that's a whole other thing, about robots not having quite as normal a face, human a face, as they have. Having a less human face being less scary to people. Can you quickly explain slightly what you mean? Because I don't know. Um, there are some robots. This is going on in Japan. Um, there are some robots that have been made that instead of having very human faces, literally just have dots and a line. That's it. And they are less scary than real rubberized human faces. So, Sarah, you've, kind of like, you've yeah. encountered some of these. Yeah. Um, not not those ones specifically, but I've encountered some that were the more uncanny level. So uh, one of the robots in the um, exhibition that, that, that I went to, that had quite humanoid features. It had been designed to have special uh, skin that was supposed to feel more like human skin, but 
obviously it didn't quite. And then when you look at that, I found that rather than seeing a human face, I started noticing the differences and going, oh, it's got no eyelashes. That's a bit creepy. It's not got this and that. So So if we are going to interact with healthcare robots in the future, probably we'll feel more happy doing so if they don't look like humans. If we can see that they're robots Mm. and and that makes it kind of clearer. There's there's not that kind of creepiness about trying to look human. Yeah. Okay, so finally, we are historians here. We're used to looking at the past and looking at change over time and how emotions and the language people have to talk about their emotions and the social codes that exist to govern how to express our emotions change. So I want you now to imagine you are a historian of emotions in 100 years' time, looking back at the 2020s. What do you think you would be picking up on and thinking, well, that was odd, you know, or that was very characteristic of the time. You know, will you say it was a weirdly over-emotional time or they were strangely obsessed with um, psychiatry and psychopathology or they hadn't figured out how to use uh, smartphones to, to, to healthily and in an emotionally happy way? I don't know. I don't want to put too many ideas in, in, your, in, in your minds. But what do you think a historian will think looking back? Um, probably what a mess. Uh, like, uh, um, I, I, I do. I, I was thinking about this this recently. Just everything going on in the in the news, the politics around the world at the moment, the very emotional terms that we often get used in the in the media. And I think it would be really confusing as a historian of the future to make sense of that. Like I often find myself thinking. Well, historians of the future are going to take this literally, but actually at the moment we're not taking something literally. And one of my friends was curating an exhibition where she was looking at teen magazines from the 1980s and 90s. And we were both remembering that and going, well, no one ever has spoken in the way that teen magazines at that time are written. But, you know, in, in a in hundred years, no one will know that, that no one yeah. really spoke like that. So do you think people reading the, the, the tweets and Instagram posts of the 2020s will think that we were all constantly sort of on the verge of complete emotional breakdown because of the the way that those are written. Possibly, yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think for me, the, the, the future historians, there's one of two possibilities and one's scary, one isn't. One is that they'll look back and go, wasn't their understanding of emotions really dumb? The same way you might read a paper about evolution from the 1890s and go, that's what they thought evolution was. That's stupid. I think they'll sort of look at it like that. The scary one is I'll look back and go, oh, this is a period when our emotions started to universalise because of technology, when they had different ones. But now because of emojis and things, we all have the same emotions and cameras that track us and make us behave in certain ways. That's my dystopian one. How would that work? Because of the universality of, of, of smartphones and emojis, emojis. we'd all be homogenised. Well, cameras that track us and decide whether we're, we're doing the right thing because of our facial expressions and how we're behaving are coming on stream in certain parts of the world. Um, and... Other scary technology is coming out there. And of course, what do you do? You behave as the cameras make you. And so if that becomes universal in this my my dystopian future, um, then we'll all behave we'll have universal emotions forced upon us. Now Cult. you've now I've found a new fear to replace my Sorry. fear that the robots are taking over the world. Or maybe the future historians won't be humans and they will look back at the time when they used to be humans with human emotions and think, thank goodness we've escaped these very confusing yeah. and destructive things listen to podcasts you, I go, what do you mean my skin doesn't feel real <laughs> yeah, that kind of thing final final question so obviously rich you have you've traced the history of emotions over the whole of 
human history or many thousands of years of human, yes. of human history. And I've traced it over a shorter number of centuries in British history. And, and Sarah, you've looked at, you know, recent periods of history, especially. And, but all of us used to the idea that there are these, you know, these kind of troughs and, and, and peaks of emotional expressiveness. 18th century, the cultural sensibility, everyone's weeping over sentimental novels and so on. People weeping over Charles Dickens in the Victorian period. And then you have the stiff upper lip and so on. I mean, I kind of feel like we're in uh, sort of really over the top peak of emotionality and expressiveness at the moment from a historical point of view. Do you see it that way in our culture? Yeah, I, I definitely I definitely do. But we're in a weird situation where we have this over-the-top peak, but it's also restrained in very specific ways. Mm. Um, so we talk a lot about what we're not supposed to feel and what we're not supposed to do, but then we'll say things on social media that, um, that are absolutely playing into these. So, so we've got and extremely this, emotive and whipping yeah. up other people's emotions. Yeah. yeah. It, is a, it seems to me a period where our technology really is driving an emotional Yeah, because world. we all know that angry and hateful yeah. tweets get more likes and clicks and retweets than calm yeah. ones. Yeah. But I'm going to keep on writing my calm tweets and hope <laughs> that between us we will change the tide of history. Yes. <laughs> well, I'm afraid that's all the emotions we have time for in this episode and this series. I'm left feeling a mixture of regret, relief and pride that we've reached this finish line, but mainly gratitude to the people who have made this series possible. Thank you to all our contributors, to Richard Firth Godby here and Sarah Cheney for talking to me today about the history and the future of human emotions, and to our colleague Emma Sutton, who presented the episode on childhood trauma. Thank you to the Wellcome Trust for their generous support, and thank you to our producer, Natalie Steed. To hear more episodes, you can subscribe to Living With Feeling, on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts and you can find out more about our work by visiting the Emotions Lab website. This has been Living With Feeling. Thank you for listening. <laughs>